praise the Lord, for it's good to sing praises to our God, for it's pleasant and a song of praise is fitting. The Lord builds up Jerusalem. He gathers the outcasts of Israel. He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. He determines the number of the stars. He gives to all of them their names. Great is our Lord, abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. The Lord lifts up the humble. He casts the wicked to the ground. Those are the first six verses of Psalm 147, which along with Psalm 146 are the psalms appointed for today, Thursday, February the 10th, 2022. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thanks for being along. We're continuing our look today at the prophecies of Isaiah. We're in the 60th chapter, the first 17 verses. We're also in the second epistle that Paul wrote to Timothy. Um, chapter 2, verses 14 to 26, and then in Mark's Gospel, chapter 10, verses 17 to 31. There's a, Actually, there's a lot of verses to cover today, so <laughs> we'll see how we do with that. <clears throat> so we begin the Isaiah, when, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the people's. But the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you. Now, that image there, behold, darkness shall cover the face of the earth, is certainly a Genesis um, image. It's from the beginning of creation, darkness covered the face of the deep. And then the Lord said, let there be light. And then that light comes and dispels that darkness. And at the same time, you can see this, darkness shall cover the earth and thick darkness the peoples, but the Lord will arise upon you and his glory will be seen upon you. And we can see that image also in the plagues in Egypt. When there's a darkness across the land of Egypt that lasts for three days, a darkness so thick and heavy it could be felt, we're told, and while at the same time out in the land of Goshen where the uh, Israelites were, the, there was light and so there's a distinction between the two. And then, again, in the Exodus, when they come to the Red Sea, the, the light, the glory of the Lord that, that has gone before them and led them to that place, then goes around as a rear guard to protect them against um, Pharaoh and his army. And so that light accompanied them in the wilderness as well. And so you're seeing this same image from creation through the Exodus to now. <clears throat> That the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you, and nations shall come to your light, and the kings to the brightness of your rising. Lift up your eyes all around and see. They all gather together. They come to you. Your sons shall come from afar, and your daughters shall be carried on the hip. Then you shall see and be radiant. Your heart shall thrill and exult, because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you. The wealth of the nations shall come to you. And so what he's seeing is this incredible redemption of the Lord, but it's the similar kind of thing that happened when they came into the land, and Solomon decided to build the temple. Because remember what we see in the time of Solomon were these kings coming from afar to see the, um, the splendor and the wisdom of Solomon. So you get kings and queens who come from afar, and then it's everybody's good pleasure to provide for the temple in that place. But we also see this thing in Jesus, right? I mean, that's what we see on the day that we celebrate the Feast of the Epiphany, the Three Kings Day. So you see kings, the Magi, coming because of the light that they saw that announced the birth of the King of the Jews. And so it's the similar kind of thing. This is the great one, though, where now we stream to that place. We, the Christian nation, um, kingdom of God, 
come and are part of that same thing. And so we have, over the last, since 1948, huge amounts of money and blessing have been poured into God's people and into the land from all over the world, from Jews and non-Jews alike. And so because of Jesus, this is what happens. That's why this flow goes in that direction. A multitude of camels shall cover you, the young camels of Midian and Ephah. All those from Sheba shall come. They... They shall bring gold and frankincense and shall bring good news, the praises of the Lord. Does that sound familiar? Gold and frankincense, people from Midian and Ephah and Sheba. The the queen of Sheba was the one who came to see Solomon. And so it'll be a time like that Solomonic time early in his career when great blessings poured in and people wanted to see him. And, And bringing gold and frankincense and good news, the praises of the Lord, all refers to Jesus. All the flocks of Kedar shall be gathered to you. The rams of Naboth shall minister to you. They shall come up with acceptance at my altar, and I will beautify my beautiful house. So that the temple will be rebuilt. And indeed, what we end up learning is the, what is called Herod's temple, which is the second temple, because the first one was the one built by Solomon. The second one was the one built by uh, Ezra and Nehemiah. Zerubbabel and all the others that were there at the time, but Herod added greatly to it and made it even more beautiful. Who are these that fly like a cloud and like doves to their windows? For the coastlands shall hope for me, the ships of Tarshish first, to bring your children from afar, their silver and gold with them, for the name of the Lord your God and for the Holy One of Israel, because he has made you beautiful." Foreigners shall build up your walls, and their kings shall minister to you. For in my wrath I struck you, but in my favor I have had mercy on you. Your gates shall be open continually day and night. They shall not be shut. And, and the purpose for that would be that there be nothing to fear, that, that the people are coming there for good intentions and for good purposes rather than evil intention, that they day and night will not be shut, that people may bring to you the wealth of the nations with their kings led in procession. And we see that same thing in um, Revelation 21, actually. We see that very same idea about the kings of the nations bringing their glory into the city of Jerusalem. And so Isaiah, the ultimate expression of Isaiah's prophecy actually is fulfilled in, in that time, in the after the um, after the the judgment has occurred, then what we get is is the fullness of Isaiah's vision for the city of Jerusalem. When when the kings of the earth bring their glory into it, what it what it says is in chapter twenty one verses twenty two to twenty seven. Let's say probably won't go all the way to 27. Uh, We'll go to 26. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day. There'll be no night there. They'll bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. And so you see that same language from here in Isaiah 60 over there, in Revelation 21, verses 22 to 26. And then says the glory of uh, the nation and kingdom that shall not serve you will perish. Those kingdoms will be utterly laid waste. The glory of Lebanon will come to you, the cypress, the plain, and the pine. That's that's where the original lumber for the temple came from, was from Lebanon, King Hire of Tidon. 
King Hiram of Tyre provided it from Lebanon to beautify the place of my sanctuary, and I will make the place of my feet glorious. That's certainly an unusual statement. This is the only place that I know of where any where that statement is made. And so the question becomes, then, what do you mean, the place of my feet? Well, his throne is in heaven, and his footstool is on earth, and that is the ark, where the Ark of the Covenant is. It's the footstool of God. So it's the place of his feet is the temple in Jerusalem. The sons of those who afflicted you shall come bending low to you, and all who despised you shall bow down at your feet. They shall call you the city of the Lord, the Zion of the Holy One of Israel. Whereas you have been forsaken and hated with no one passing through, I'll make you majestic forever, a joy from age to age. You shall nurse at the breast of kings, and you shall know that I, the Lord, am your Savior and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. Instead of bronze, I will bring gold, and instead of iron, I will bring silver. Instead of wood, bronze, instead of stones, iron, I will make your overseers peace and your taskmasters righteousness. And so it's a complete reversal of the situation that they're in now as exiles. And, and it's, it's the encouragement that they need to believe that these are the words of the Lord and that he will accomplish them. And, and he does. But in the time when they're rebuilding all this, they constantly have to be re-encouraged because the task is so great to go from the destruction that they see when they come back to rebuilding the walls in, in just of like seven weeks. And then after that, being able to rebuild the temple to its former glory would have seemed an impossible task. And it would have been had it not been for the fact that the Lord was with them. And that's the most important promise we ever have. And Jesus makes that promise in the Great Commission when he tells us to go and do that work and says, Lo, I'll be with you always, even to the end of the age. Well, it's a good thing because we couldn't possibly accomplish anything of real value unless he were. In the gospel today, Jesus is setting out on a journey, and a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So he's recognized something in Jesus. He ran up and knelt before him and asked him a question that he thinks Jesus will have the answer to. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, Why do you call me good? No one's good except God alone. And and that's something that we need to be, uh, as Christians, a little bit better aware of, is using that term good. Um, I'm not a good man because I'm not exactly the way God intended me to be. And that's exactly what that means, is is something is good means it's exactly the way God intended it to be. Well, I'm not. And neither is anybody else you know. (laughs) Good has a biblical definition that we need to be careful about, I think, in our own lives. Jesus said, why do you call me good? No one's good except God alone. You know the commandments. Don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't bear false witness, don't defraud, honor your father and mother. And the man says, teacher, I've done all these things since I was a youth. But do you notice where Jesus begins? He begins with the duties that we have, the commandments that we have concerning interpersonal relationships. He doesn't even mention worshiping God and worshiping him alone don't have idols, those kinds of things. Jesus looked at him, loved him, loved him, and said to him, you lack one thing, go sell all you have and give it to the poor, and then you will have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. In other words, he had a lot of idols that were more important to him than God. That's all that saying is, is that, that Jesus says, you've been, you've been a quote, good man because you've done all these things. But you're not that good because you still have idols in your life. You have things in your life that are more important than the kingdom of God. And the proof is, well, you won't get rid of them. 
in order to, to enter the kingdom. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. And it's because that they had basically a health and wealth understanding of the world. Anybody who had much was clearly blessed by God. If you didn't have much, well, there may be room for you as well, but people believed that this, this wealth was a sign of God's favor in your life. And Jesus here is questioning whether you can even get in if you're wealthy. But Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? If, if a rich guy who we see that has God's favor can't be saved, then, then how can people like us be saved? And Jesus looked at him and said, with man it's impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. And does that mean that, that God overlooks all that stuff? No, I don't think it does. I think what it means is, is God can change your heart. And he can give you the right heart. You can't enter on your own. You have to be reborn. You have to be a new creation. You have to have been born again. And in that way, through the power of the Holy Spirit dwelling in you, then you can make the decision to walk away from those things. He's being um, compassionate on this guy because um, he loved him. And he gave him an option of how to do this. And so the Holy Spirit can change you. And if the Holy Spirit doesn't change your life, then God has other means in which to do that. He can bring you low. He, he, all things are in his hands, and he can get you to a place where you can come to him. Peter began to say to him, see, we've left everything and followed you. You know, hey, we, we've done everything. We're getting in, surely, aren't we? Jesus said, truly, I say to you, no one has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. That's not a promise of health and wealth if you come to the Lord. That is not what that says. It's not what he's saying at all. Nowhere does he say such a thing as that. If he wanted to say it, he could be incredibly clear about it. But no, what we do have is access to all those things because of Christian fellowship with one another. I have people that love me all over the place, and I could just call them in an instant and say, hey, I need a place to be for a couple of days. I'm coming your way. Can I stay with you? And they would say, absolutely, and vice versa. So we're always to be welcoming those who are part of the household of God. And so we do receive all these things. I, after my father died, I had two men in my life who, who were like surrogate fathers to me. I was a 37-year-old man, but I still needed a dad, right? I mean, you always need a dad. Jesus it gives us a father that we can always relate to, but I needed some earthly uh, dads as well, people to give me advice as I was moving into ministry and doing what, what I felt like God was calling me to do. I needed them to be able to speak into my life and to, to help me think through those things. And so I was gifted with that. And I've been gifted with any number of women who could be mothers in my life. And who and I appreciate that gift very much. And I wouldn't have had them if I hadn't been in Jesus. If I hadn't been uh, in ministry um, I wouldn't have been exposed to most of those people, but God put me in places where they were there. And they were that was true not just for me as the priest, but it was true for, for many others as well. In the epistle lesson today, Tim, Timothy is being instructed by Paul how to lead the church. 
He says, remind them of these things and charge them before God, not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. You know, it, it, be more interested in the, the larger things than, than just arguing about the meanings of words. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. In other words, be clear and be correct in the way that you divide the word of God. Be very straightforward about all those things. Don't get bogged down in all the details, but make sure that everything you do, you're telling the truth. You're rightly handling the Word of God. But avoid irreverent babble, for it'll lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. <clears throat> Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. And when they say the resurrection has already happened, they mean the resurrection of the dead for the believers. And so what they're doing is causing these people to question themselves whether they were in the in the kingdom of God or not because the resurrection's already happened and you apparently you didn't participate in it. They're upsetting the faith of some, but God's firm foundation stands bearing the seal. The Lord knows those who are his and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. So it's a very simple thing, he says, is that, that you can see it in the lives of believers, the ones who truly believe. They have forsaken their other ways, the previous ways in which they walked, and they are now walking in the light. Now, in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. And you see that back in that Isaiah passage, and he says, instead of bronze, I'll bring gold and iron, silver, wood, bronze, stones, iron. It, it's There's a uh, in the temple, even the the further you get from the holy of holies, the place where the ark is, the further you get from that, moving away from it, then the material itself becomes less and less quote valuable. It's all valuable because it's sacred to the Lord because it's part of His dwelling place. But the the relative value uh, of those materials. Uh, gets less the further away you get from the presence of God. And there's something being expressed there as you move into that, and only one person could do that once a year. (laughs) But as you move into that, the more precious the materials are. And so Paul's saying here that that there's there's a variety of things in, in a house as well, and some of those things are used for dishonorable means and some for honorable use. And it would be like he's speaking about a privy, for instance, would be one of those things, an outhouse. So you're not going to make the outhouse real nice. Now, I know supposedly John, Donald Trump has at least one place where he has gold toilets, and, and that's just weird. <clears throat> There's no other way I can say it other than that. He says, therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. And so we we change our lives. We become more precious to him the more we cleanse ourselves from what's dishonorable. We, we improve the value of our lives by keeping his commandments and walking in his ways. He says, so flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. You know, I want you to be a valuable thing in the house of the Lord, Timothy, and so flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. And do it, don't do it, do it by yourself, but also along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. And then he's telling him some of the ways to do that have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. And man, oh man, is the church constantly filled with foolish, ignorant controversies. I have argued with people about some of the most ridiculous stuff in the world, and I've heard people argue about even more ridiculous stuff. 
He says, you know they breed quarrels, and the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring, correcting his opponents with gentleness. And what he means by correcting his opponents with gentleness is, if somebody brings a false teaching in, then how are you going to deal with that? And I certainly had to deal with it in my ministry. I had to deal with it several times here in Asheville, where somebody who I had not raised up as a teacher, somebody else put him into the role of teaching something, and I happened to come in and hear it and had to correct it, because people could be led astray by it. And, And that's a serious problem. But you have to do it with gentleness. You have to do it assuming that the person doesn't have an evil intent. They're just misinformed and don't understand things. And so you got to be careful with that. But you also have to always be willing to be corrected yourself. Because it doesn't mean that I'm going to get everything right in every word that I say. I say way too many words to get them all right. So we've got to be able to be corrected with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. It's not that they've sold themselves to him here. It is a sense of that, that they unwittingly found themselves captured by him. And, and to, when it says something like to do his will like that, think about Jesus turning on Peter and saying, get behind me, Satan. Peter was wrong. And Jesus rebuked him, and he had to rebuke him strongly in that, in that time because it was such a dangerous thing, and he had to know that the rest of the disciples were thinking the same thing he was, and that was, no, 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 you don't have to be crucified. You, you can have the kingdom otherwise, but it, which was exactly the temptation that Satan had put before him. So when Jesus turns and says, get behind me, Satan, it's a rebuke of Peter, but he also knows that it's a danger to everybody else there as well. If they're not saying it out loud, it doesn't mean they don't think it. It just means that Peter was the one dumb enough to say it. And so we have to be constantly on guard against thinking, oh, okay, that person's Satan or Satan's in him or whatever. Yes, he can be in each and every one of us leading us astray that we might lead others astray. Not some evil intent on our part, but because we don't know the truth or we're afraid to express that truth. And it's important that we be clear about all those things.